In Matthew 24, <clears throat> the Lord addressed the time in which we live. The fact that it's called birth pangs indicates to us that the birth pangs are going to increase in intensity and rapidity. And however difficult and dark and stormy the time may seem, birth pangs mean there's a birth coming. And that is really our spiritual focus. Uh, we know that God is going to do some marvelous things in our time in history. We are very privileged that God chose to place us in this particular time. This is an amazing time to be alive. Let us join together at the throne of grace and pray as we prepare to open our Bible. I'm going to share with you about eight or ten passages, very rapid fire, so you're going to have to nimble your fingers up, and we're going to be going to several different scriptures. Father in heaven, once again, <clears throat> as we come to your word, we recognize our own natural incapacity and inadequacy, the sluggishness of our souls, the too often coldness and hardness of our hearts. But Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will deal with us in mercy and grace as you always do. Light that fire in our heart that burns brightly with a hunger for your word, a desire to be faithful, a desire to join those who through the ages have faced all odds and always come off victorious. We pray particularly as we look at the doctrine of the rapture of the church, that you will give us clarity of thought and mind because it is such an important teaching that relates to our time and I believe our generation. So open your word to us and satisfy the hunger in our souls and we will thank you and praise you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Before we begin, I want you to just turn with me to Revelation 4. And we'll probably be back there, but it's a good place for us to uh, begin looking at the topic for this hour. <clears throat> you might even want to hold your place in Revelation chapter 1, and I'll refer you back to that. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. It's very interesting that the phrase translated here, standing open, I'm using the New American Standard, um, translates the perfect tense. It indicates that the door was opened at some point in the past with the result that it remains open today. And of course, that door was opened through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You'll remember, prior to the crucifixion, Old Testament saints did not enter directly into the presence of God on their death. As we learn in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and I am of the opinion, most people refer to it as a parable. I'm inclined to think that parables do not use personal names and they do not use the phrase, a certain man. Whenever you see a certain man or a personal name, we're talking not about a parable, we're talking about an actual incident. And so the rich man and Lazarus illustrate for us that people who died prior to the cross 
unbelievers went to the place called torments where unbelievers still go today. We refer to it as hell. Uh, believers prior to the cross went to Abraham's bosom and were not allowed to enter into the presence of the Lord until the work of redemption was done on the cross. Uh, we believe that this is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about after the crucifixion, Jesus led captivity captive. Another little hint is that while the poor man was in paradise, and we know that paradise was somewhere in the center of the earth, uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that paradise is now in the third heaven. So those saints from the Old Testament awaited the fulfillment of the work of Christ on the cross and then were ushered into the presence of the Father. Uh, for us as church-age believers, when we die, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, the minute that we're absent from the body, we are in the presence of the Lord. So just a little background on that. <clears throat> the door standing open in heaven and the first voice that I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, the trumpet, of course, being the verse or the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, said, come up here and I will show you what things must take place after these things. You notice that the phrase after these things occurs twice in the verse. If you turn back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, you'll remember the outline of the book. Write the things that you have seen. That's the vision of chapter 1. The things which are, that refers to church history in chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after these things. So I point that out because what we basically have in Revelation 4.1 is the uh, picture of the rapture of the church. If you'll go back with me, we want to look at the rapture of the church because as I said earlier, the doctrine of the rapture of the church is under a great deal of attack today as all truth is under attack. And the more the time draws near, the more the attack is going to be. So I'm going to very quickly go through a lot of passages. Uh, I know that we're not going to have time to go into all the details. What I hope to do by stringing these passages, this is really an old rabbinical uh, method of teaching. They called it stringing pearls. In other words, they would gather, Paul does it all the time in his epistles, particularly Romans, where he will string Old Testament passages together, one right after another, so that they more or less convey a cohesive message. So what we're going to try to do is string some pearls, look at different passages, and I hope that I can point out some things in these passages that you may uh, some of you may not have seen before. So let's start with the promise of the rapture, and we start again in the upper room. So I said earlier, the upper room is church-age truth. Jesus was anticipating the promise that he made in Matthew chapter 16 when he said, on this rock I will, that is future, build my church. Now he's gathered with the disciples in the upper room just before the crucifixion, and he begins to unveil to them, to reveal to them truth that would relate to the time in which you and I live. So if you'll begin with me in John 14, in verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Place for you. 
<clears throat> and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you see the rapture in this church? He tells us that he's leaving. He tells us what he's going to be doing while he's gone. He's going to be preparing a place. And then he tells us that he is going to come and receive us to himself. That is the rapture of the church. That is the first mention of the rapture of the church in the New Testament. We often miss over it because we're, we're reading it and we just think it's not much, but it's actually very important information. So the rapture of the church is mentioned. Uh, and by the way, um, I should have done this while we were in Revelation chapter 4.1, but take down four points on Revelation 4.1. I jotted these in my notes, and so I kind of overlooked we were there, but let me just, uh, four reasons why we know that the rapture of the church happens at Revelation 4.1. If someone asks you, how can you prove that this is referring to the rapture of the church, what would you tell them? I'll give you four things that I think are decisive. Number one, the command come up here is the same as shout in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Remember that the Lord descends from heaven with a shout. What is the shout? The shout is a command, come up here. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Secondly, it concludes the time of the things that are. In Revelation 2 and 3, we're dealing with the church age. The church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And then we see the church in heaven in chapter 4 and 5, and the church is not mentioned. In the section that deals with the tribulation, chapter 6 through 19, the church is never mentioned one time. Uh, that should be something glaringly obvious to us. Uh, we have many Christians today who are afraid that we're going to go through the tribulation. No, it's not going to happen. Tribulation, yes. Tribulation has always existed. Tribulation is not the same as the tribulation. Big, big difference. So the things which are Revelation 2 and 3. Third, the scene shifts to the church in heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. How do we know that? Look at the song that they sing in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. You are worthy to receive honor and praise and glory because you have redeemed us to God by your blood and you have made us kings and priests. So here's a quick question for you. What group of people in all of human history are identified as royal priests? Only the church age. I mean, really, it's very clear if we just look at the markers that we have in Scripture. Point four, I mentioned this a moment ago, but review is always good. After the church is mentioned 19 times in chapter 2 and 3, it is never mentioned in the tribulation section, chapters 6 through 19. You have to be either blind or willfully ignorant, or unfortunately tied to a theological position. Here's what happens to far too many Christians. They hear a the theological position, maybe their favorite pastor, their favorite preacher, the church that they go to, that is their theological position. They adopt the theological position. They put it on like spectacles, and everything they see in the Bible 
they see through the lens of their pet theological position. You know, it's kind of like the guy that every message that he preached, an old Baptist pastor, and every message he preached was always on baptism. And so the elders got together and they said, we've got to get him off of this baptism thing. Let's see if we can uh, get him to a passage where he can't do it. And he said, they said, would you teach Genesis, the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1? He said, yeah, he'd be glad to. So Sunday morning, he stands up, opens his Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without for form and void, and the Spirit was brooding over the waters. And that brings me to my subject. You can force a position uh, into Scripture by adopting uh, a theological perspective uh, and then everything you see, you know, it's like they say, if you're a hammer, what does everything look like? Everything looks like a nail. Beware of adopting a theological position. Go to the Scripture. Let the Scripture inform your theological position. We are, as a church, greatly weakened, uh, unfortunately much divided because of preconceived theological positions that are then imposed on the Scripture. And some of them we'll mention as we go along the way. All right, so just out of curiosity, how many of you, don't raise your hands please, but did you see the rapture in John 14? Before this, John 14, 1 through 4, did you ever see the rapture there? That is the first mention of the rapture in the New Testament. Very important. I will come again. I will receive you to myself. That's the first statement that gives us an understanding of what's going to happen at the rapture. That is the promise of the rapture by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we want to see the method of the rapture. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. What's it going to be like? 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, let's begin in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You and I cannot enter the kingdom of God as we are. And the reason for that is because we are both mortal and sinful. To be sinful is to be mortal. To be mortal is to prove that you're sinful. So, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Whenever Paul talks about the mystery, he's talking about newly revealed church age truth. By the way, Jesus spoke of information, but he didn't go into a lot of detail. Uh, he left that for the Apostle Paul. Uh, he actually talked about it as new wine. Of course, that particularly relates to the New Covenant, uh, but we still have believers today. The whole Hebrew Roots movement is an attempt to forsake the New Covenant and go back to the Old Covenant. Why in the world would you want to leave the new wine of the New Covenant, the marvelous grace that we have to go back into the covenant of the law? But as I said last time, Peter did it, in Galatians chapter 2, <clears throat> the Jewish believers, the first disciples, uh, they would have gone that direction had it not been for Paul taking a very strong stand. <clears throat> so he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
So this has not been previously revealed. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Churches love to put that on their nursery, I know. <clears throat> Verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So as quick as the blink of an eye, the last trumpet will sound, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. This refers to the dead believers. This is not unbelievers. These are saved people. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we, that is those of us who are alive, will be changed, transformed in a moment of time. We will no longer be flesh and blood. We will be a glorified body. What is that glorified body going to be like? We do not know. There are people that will tell you they know, but I rely on John in 1 John chapter 3. He said, Behold what manner of love the Father has shown on us that we should be called the children of God. And we do not know what we shall be, but we do know that when He appears, we will be like Him. So it kind of indicates to me that Jesus may even be in a little bit different form than He was immediately following the resurrection because they obviously saw Him, they ate with Him, they touched Him. Uh, as Paul points out earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 believers that saw Him after the resurrection, uh, and yet John says, we do not know what we shall be. When we see Him, then we'll be like Him. So continuing on, he says, verse 53, for this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Your soul has eternal life right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your body doesn't. Your body is dying. Anybody over the age of 40 knows it. Anybody over the age of 60 wonders how long they can hold it off. But we're all dying from the moment that we're born until death claims us, whenever that may be, it is unfortunately a sad decline, and uh, I don't know if we'll have time to get into this. Uh, you'll, you'll have the doctrine of the incorrigibility of the sin nature, but Scripture indicates that from the moment you're born, your sin nature is getting worse day by day. It is all downhill from the moment of birth in your sin nature. You know that as well as anyone. We talk about the innocence of childhood. Why are children innocent matters? Only because they haven't learned how not to be innocent. And the longer we live and the longer we allow the sin nature to dominate our life, the more corrupt our lifestyle is going to become. And the evil of the sin nature is going to come out in our life. Thank God with the work of Christ on the cross and by believing in Him, Paul tells us that the power of the old man is nullified. It doesn't mean that it's not still there. It doesn't mean that it can't still be exerted. It means you and I have to stand up like men and women of God and say, no more. We have the choice to be under the power of the Spirit of God and in fellowship with God and obedience to the Word, to walk away uh, in carnality and live our lives. If I'm going to get through eight, class, uh, eight verses or passages, I better hurry up. Verse 54, when the perishable will have put on imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Can you imagine wanting to go back under the law? That's the power of sin. Why in the world would anyone want to do it? Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gift. You say, yes, I have the victory. I've trusted Christ. I have eternal life. I'm going to heaven. But are we claiming that victory ground every day? We were just singing about it. Claiming that victory ground. Choosing to live in the victory that has been given to us as a free gift by walking in the power of the Spirit and obedience to the Word of God. Therefore, my beloved uh, brethren, be steadfast, immovable, immovable, always abiding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. How is your work in the Lord going? I used to have a friend that uh, when I hadn't seen him for quite some time and we uh, met again, he would almost invariably ask me a question, how's your spiritual life? Has anybody asked you how your spiritual life is? Almost makes you uncomfortable. It almost gets convicting. Are you living on victory ground? Or are we living in compromise or even defeat? It's a question that we need to ask. What will the rapture be like? That passage gives us one view. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll have another view. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed. The better translation would be ignorant. Ignorance is death in the spiritual realm. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep, that is, Christians who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. He doesn't prohibit grief. He doesn't say that we're not going to grieve at the loss of loved ones. The difference is, and I've seen it in many, many funerals. I know any pastor that's done a number of funerals can tell you there's a difference between the funeral of a Christian and the funeral of an unbeliever. I have even seen funerals of unbelievers that were more just outright celebration. There were more smiles, more laughs, sometimes more funny stories told, great memories relived. You can't do that with the death of an unbeliever because there is no hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> we do not grieve as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the key, that's the criteria. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? If you believe that he died and why he died, he died for your sin, he rose again, that was his victory over sin, Satan, and the grave. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Why does he refer to death of believers as sleep? Because there's a wake-up coming. This is not soul sleep. This is not the sleep of the soul while the body's in the tomb. This is the sleep of the body while the spirit and soul are in the presence of the Lord. And there's going to be an awakening Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain, that's the ones he said in 1 Corinthians 15 would be transformed. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, and by the way, you and I may be in that company. I, I truly hope that we are. Uh, I have no question uh, that some will be. Some of us may not make it. We may have run out our string, who knows. 
we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Christ is not coming in the rapture to take the living and, and those who have died in Christ are going to have to wait until some later date. As a matter of fact, he reverses it. When the Lord descends, verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. What is the shout? I just told you, come up here. With the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, you remember John said, I heard a voice like a trumpet, so the passages coalesce. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and can you imagine all of the believers who have lived from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came until the rapture of the church are all going to rise. I mean, how amazing is that? And if you're alive when it happens, you're going to be watching all this in real time because you're going to be part of it. Then we who are alive and remain. Now you might ask the question, some apparently were concerned that living believers would go ahead of the dead believers. Paul reverses it and says the dead believers rise first. Why do the dead believers rise first? They got six feet further to go. We who are alive and remain will be caught up. There's our word harpazo. The Greek was, of course, uh, initially translated into Latin, and the Latin word rapere or rapto uh, is the word that's used here from which we get raptor. But harpazo means to snatch out of immediate danger, which kind of indicates that the world's going to be in a mess when it happens. It kind of makes me think it could happen tonight. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. We have four examples of the rapture in Scripture. These are not in your notes, so jot them down. Number one, Enoch. Enoch is an illustration of the rapture. Enoch walked with God, and Enoch was not because God took him. Genesis 5, 21. Secondly, the Lord Jesus himself. In Revelation 12, 5, as John speaks in sign language, essentially what the book of Revelation is, it is signs of various things. And you have Israel giving birth to a male child, and the male child is about to be devoured by the dragon, and the male child was caught up to God and to his throne. Guess what the word is? Same word used here for the rapture. It's harpazo. You want to write it in English, it's H-A-R-P-A-D-Z-O, harpazo. So the Lord Jesus is an illustration. Third, Philip. You remember the story of Philip going down into the desert in Gaza. He met the Ethiopian, led the Ethiopian to Christ. The Ethiopian wanted to be baptized, and that brings me to my topic. No, sorry. <laughs> Philip baptized him. And then what happened? Philip was caught up by the Lord and he was found a long ways away. He got a personal preview of the rapture. Once again, same word, harpazo. That's in Acts chapter 8, verse 39. And then we have our final illustration is the Apostle Paul, who tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, that he was caught up to the third heaven. Once again, same word, harpazo. 
So we have the promise of the rapture. We have the method of the rapture. What most people are interested in is the timing of the rapture. Stick with me here in 1 Thessalonians 5 because I want to show you some things that give us evidence of the timing of the rapture. Again, some of these are extended passages. I won't try to deal with everything, just the essential points. 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Now as to the times and the epochs, or your translation may say times and seasons. By the way, times and seasons is code for dispensations. Times and seasons. Times is chronos, from which we get chronology. And the seasons refer to individual segments of time, what we would call a dispensation. That's the word kairos, chronos and kairos. If you recall, in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus prepared to ascend, what did the disciples ask him? Remember what they asked him? about Acts 1, 6 or 7. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And his answer was, it is not for you to know the chronos and the kairos. It's not for you to know. I'm not going to let you in on it. Why? Because I'm going to wait until Paul reveals it and he'll finally get you guys squared away on the plan of God. So in Acts 1 and verse 6 and 7, they could not know the Kronos and Kairos. And here Paul's writing to his disciples, and he says, concerning the Kronos and the Kairos, you have no reason for me to write to you because you know perfectly well. Why did they know perfectly well? The apostle Paul instructed them on what God had revealed to him that was unknown prior to that time. Verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Question for you. How many times have you said to someone else or another believer has said to you, well, you know, the Lord's coming as a thief in the night. And I always frustrate people when they say that to me because I say, not for me, he's not. And they go, well, what do you mean? I said, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It tells us that Christians should never use that term. That is not a church age Christian term. Look at what he says. He says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Quick question. What's the day of the Lord? That's code from the Old Testament for tribulation period. The day of the Lord and the day of Christ are not the same. The day of Christ happens in the twinkling of an eye. The day of the Lord lasts from the rapture of the church until the end of the millennium. The day of the Lord is a thousand and seven years long. The day of Christ is a split second. If you compare passages, look up day of the Lord and you will find certain characteristics of the day of the Lord. Gloom, shame, fear, judgment. That's the day of the Lord. Look up the passages that talk about the day of Christ and what do you find? Joy, celebration, reward, singing, two total, totally different times. If I had my little chart up here and I got my artistic self, I would show you the day of Christ is the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord is from the beginning of the tribulation to the end of the millennium. We'll get into that more as we move along. The day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night. How does a thief in the night come? 
comes by surprise. You know, if you know the thief is coming, Jesus said, if you're a strong man, you arm yourself and you foil the intent of the thief. But if the thief comes on you while you're sleeping unexpectedly, he's going to prevail. What is Jesus saying here? When the rapture of the church happens, the earth is not at all prepared for what is about to happen. It is going to take the whole world by surprise. The rapture of the church by itself is going to create so much confusion and chaos and fear that it will be absolutely unbelievable. And the only thing that the elites and those above the elites and those above the ones above, I mean, sooner or later we to Lucifer, don't we? The whole Luciferian planners and plotters, the ones that are working his plan in history, they are not ready for what's coming. They think they're in control. They think they can direct history. One of them, I won't mention his name because if you say certain things, all of Paul's work is in vain because then they take me off the air. He said, I believe that I am a God. I believe that I am a God. We can control history. We can control the nations. We can impose our plan on the world. And one day, rapture happens and chaos is going to reign. All right, continuing on. While they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them suddenly like labor pains on a woman with child and they will not escape. Once again, we have the figure of labor pains used in a different context than what we had in Matthew 24. But notice the message is peace and safety. When Antichrist comes on the scene, he is going to come with the signs and lying wonders like no human being has ever had an entrance on the stage of human history. And the world is going to by and large fall at his feet and he is going to promise to be the solution to every problem. And the messages on the media are going to be, we have finally arrived at the golden age. It is going to be peace and safety. And then bang, judgment's going to fall. Notice verse four, but you. It's a conjunction of contrast. The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night on them, but not on you. You, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. Do you see that the scripture is telling us that we should never use that phrase? You say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's just a way of speaking. No, it's an unbiblical way of speaking. And even small things are important when it comes to scripture. The Lord is not coming for the church like a thief in the night. If the church is awake as we should be, we are going to be looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Titus tells us to do in Titus 2.13. How could it surprise you if you're looking, if you have relatives coming and you're looking down the road for their coming, they're not going to surprise you. When the prodigal son decided to return to his father and his father was looking down the road and saw the prodigal afar off, he was not surprised. He was looking for him, right? 
You are all, verse 5, sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Here's a question for you. This is maybe a little bit different conference because I'm asking you to tell me what he means. What do you call a believer who's asleep? Carnal? Out of fellowship? Got their head where the sun doesn't shine something. They're not awake. Are they still a believer? Yes. Question. If a believer is asleep when Jesus comes, have they persevered to the end? No. Do you have to persevere to the end to be saved? No. In fact, I would suggest most believers won't. It's a false doctrine. It's a false doctrine that was developed on a theological position that was built on rigorous intellectual arrogance. So if people are teaching you, you got to hold out till the end. What does he say here? Let us not sleep. Why would he command us not to sleep if it's impossible for a believer to sleep? If you're really a believer, you will persevere to the end. It's not what the scripture says. Verse 7, those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. You know what he's doing here? He is comparing being a spiritually asleep believer to being a drunk believer. You might as well just be drunk. It's all the same thing. Verse 8, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why in the world would you put on the armor of God? Because you're going into battle. There's a fight to be fought. There's an enemy that hates you and wants to drag you down and is lurking at every corner of your life in every thicket of life to drag you down and you have to be armed and prepared to do battle. Verse 9, this is the telling verse. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch carefully, verse 10, who died for us believers so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. The lie that if you're out of fellowship when Jesus comes, you get left behind is contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. When Christ comes, He comes for all the church. He comes for every believer. Are there some who are going to be asleep? Yes. They're going to be out of it. They're going to be distracted. They're going to be living in carnality, whatever may be the thing that puts them to sleep. The siren song of the world in their ear lulls them. The lullaby of the devil lulls them to sleep. You know, sometimes when I teach the rapture, I hear Christians saying, oftentimes as younger Christians, I hope it's not soon. Of course, they always want to get married first. I just did a wedding for a marvelous, beautiful young couple down in Texas and <clears throat> we were joking with a young man said, you know, the rapture is probably going to come before the wedding. <clears throat> and then I saw him uh, about, what, two weeks after the wedding. And I said, you okay with the rapture now? And he said, yeah. 
Verse 11 says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another as you also are doing. We can't encourage and build each other up if we fall for false teaching. Okay. The timing of the rapture. What is the timing of the rapture? Again, I'm not going to turn to Revelation 4 and 5. It has to come before the tribulation. We'll see more on that in just a moment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 give us a little bit more detail on the timing. If you'll turn there, Paul really laid it out to the Thessalonian believers. And I believe that he, he did so because they were eager. They wanted to learn. They wanted to know. They were positive. They were very receptive. And so he laid it out. I won't read through for, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, but if you read through chapter 1, you know that you're looking at tribulation type time, time span or time frame. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1, Now we request you, brethren. Paul, you know, is so humble and so condescending and so gracious. He pleads with us to learn the truth for our good, for our benefit, and also for the sake of what ministry we're going to have as we witness to the unsaved, as we encourage unbelievers. My friends, you have a world around you crying out for someone to minister, and you are in your sphere of influence to be at least one of the ministers that God has in that place. You don't have to be a Bible teacher and you don't have to be a theologian. All you have to do is be a faithful believer filled with the Spirit and growing in God's Word, and you will have the resources to meet the crying needs around you. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. What point of time is He talking about? Same one as John 14, 3. Same one as Revelation 4, verse 1. Same one as 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and following. Same one as 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following. It's the rapture of the church. But I want you to hang with me here because this is a little bit of a difficult passage. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. I don't want you to be shaken by someone pretending to be an apostle or sending a letter as if it's from me telling you that you're in the tribulation period. Now we immediately run into some textual problems. How many of you have a translation that says the day of Christ? So there is a textual variant and one line of Transmission uses day of Christ. I'm using the New American Standard. It uses day of the Lord. How in the world could we tell which one Paul's talking about? If the day of Christ is the rapture of the church, really either one of them could be pretty terrifying. If I stood up here and said to you, by the way, the rapture has already happened. You know what that would mean? That would mean you're in the day of the Lord, right? Right? So either one of them could be terrifying. 
But I take it to be the day of the Lord simply because of the context of uh, chapter one. Chapter one is talking about the judgment that is going to fall on the lost. It's talking about the tribulation period. And therefore, I take day of the Lord as being the accurate phrase. Let no one in any way deceive you, verse three says, for it, what is the it, the day of the Lord, will not come. This is another reason why it can't be the day of Christ. The day of Christ cannot depend on verse three, but the day of the Lord does. Does that make sense? Look at verse three. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless what comes first? The apostasy. Right? And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. You ready for this? Put on your thinking hat. This is a mistranslation. It is not the apostasy. It is the departure. Number one, it has the definite article referring back to what he mentioned in verse one. Number two, out of 15 times that the word apostasia is used or epistemy is used. If you go back to the Cranmer study Bible, if you go back to the early English versions of the Bible, every one of them translated this. That day cannot come until the departure comes first. If you say the departure and you're using that definite article, what departure could you be referring to? Obviously the one he just mentioned in chapter one. Is this coming through to you? I know this is a little bit difficult. It's a little bit tangled. Let's play a little game. Let's say that it's talking about the day of Christ, the rapture of the church. Let's read it that way and see if it fits. Okay, sometimes it helps to play uh, a little bit of what if. So he's saying, I'm requesting you regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Okay, we know we're clear on that's the rapture that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the rapture has happened. Okay, I'm taking the opposite view here for the sake of argument. Let no one deceive you, verse 3, in any way, for that day, the rapture, cannot come until the apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That would be telling us the rapture can't happen until Antichrist is on the scene. Do you get it? You and I are never going to see the Antichrist. How do I know that? Because I understand the passage, and what he's saying is... The departure precedes the man of lawlessness coming and the man of lawlessness is going to bring on the tribulation. Read on verse four. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Who is this? It's Antichrist. What is the incident he's referring to? It's called the abomination of desolation. When does the abomination of desolation happen? Middle of the tribulation period. I'll show you that tomorrow. We're going to look at all those passages. 
Do you not remember verse 5? When I was with you, I was telling you these things. What things was he telling them? Well, let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, so you will not grieve as the rest that have no hope. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, God will bring with him. He explained all this to them. What did he tell them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? He told them that day is not going to come on you as a thief in the night. Why? Because you're not going to be here. You're going to be gone. That day cannot come until the rapture of the church. What is the reason for the rapture of the church? Can anyone explain that to me? We have to get out of the way so that God can resume His plan with the nation of Israel because Paul made it clear that the nation of Israel is ultimately going to repent en masse and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what he tells us? The church has to be removed. Hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians. Turn with me to Romans. This is the most simple, single statement. We know that Romans 9, 10, and 11 is dealing with Israel, right? The book of Romans is a very systematic, categorical book. Chapter 1 through 3, the doctrine of condemnation. Chapter 4 and 5, the doctrine of justification. Chapter 6 through 8, the doctrine of sanctification. Chapter 9 through 11, the doctrine of dispensation. Chapters 12 through 16, the doctrine of transformation. Paul is very, very systematic. By the way, I'm going to be teaching all that in a conference in Alabama, which will be toward the end of my run that I'm in the middle of right now in the first weekend in June. It's a long ways away and I've got a long way to go. What does he tell us? Romans 11. Verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed. Forget uninformed. The word is ignorant. I don't want ignorant believers. I want believers who know and understand the truth. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of this mystery. What is it? So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, you won't be so arrogant you get caught up by a false theological position that was dreamed up in somebody's mind. You'll take your theological position by studying the Scripture. And what is it? That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until. What is the word until? It's a word of time limitation. Until. Something is being limited. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles coming in is a harvest analogy, a harvest phrase. You ever sing bringing in the sheaves? Bringing in the sheaves, you know? Yeah, you guys know it. What's it talking about? It's talking about a harvest. The harvest is going to be brought in. The sheaves are going to be brought in. And Israel cannot be restored to God until the church is out of here. Partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles. That one verse tells you something very important. 
The idea of replacement theology is a false doctrine. The church does not replace Israel. The church and Israel are totally unique. They are not one and the same. The church is not a follow-on after Israel. We do not replace Israel. In fact, we have to be removed so that God can finish His work with the nation of Israel and fulfill His promises. You know what? If you believe replacement theology and you believe that the church replaces Israel, then God lied to Israel and His promises are not going to be kept and who knows but what He's going to come up with some new group and then He's going to take all of our promises and give to them and we're going to be out. God is faithful. His promises are true. He will accomplish all that He said He would do and the rapture of the church is what is holding right now so many different forces in this world that are working and you look at them and you can see them. You can see the world leaders. You can see the nations. You can see their attempts to do things. And it's like they get so close and it just, I mean, three years ago, we took two weeks. We, it was right after we were here. We had breakfast at Bob Evans the day that the COVID thing started and we went to the airport. It was the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. The airport was empty. And fortunately, there was a plane to take us. But the destruction and the misery and the businesses that have failed and the families that have been plunged into poverty because of the tyranny that was imposed on us. But guess what? It didn't quite work. Their plan was never to lift it, never to change it. Always to keep, you know that they built those camps in Australia. They had all those camps and some people were actually put into them. Well, their plan was to put everyone in if you were a rebel against government. Because see now, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in France, whether you're in Germany, whether you're in the United States, whether you're in the United Kingdom, you don't dare question the official line that you're being fed. You may not know this, but you are under more surveillance than any citizen of Soviet Russia was ever under surveillance. Your government knows more about you, has more files on, the, on you than you have any idea. Did you know that every single one of you could be arrested tomorrow and trumped up charges could be brought against you that would put, put you in prison the rest of your life? That's the world we're living in. It's not pretty, but that's the way it is but they just can't quite make it work. And the reason they can't make it work is, read on with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It was at work back in the days of Paul. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. By the way, in verse 6, it is a what that restrains. And in verse 7, it is a he who restrains. And the reason is because the he indwells the what? It's the church indwelt by the Holy Spirit that is restraining Satan from being able to accomplish his plans. And it's holding everything back. When the restrainer is taken out of the way, what is that? Rapture of the church, again mentioned in verse 2, again mentioned in verse 3. 
Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Which coming? Second advent. Now we've just jumped seven years in a couple of verses. The Lord will bring Satan to an end and Antichrist, his puppet on earth to an end. Verse 9, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. When Antichrist is revealed, it's going to be a light show like the world has never seen. It's going to be miracle upon miracle, sign upon sign, spectacular event after spectacular event. And by the way, I said this to my group in Australia some 25 years ago, and they thought I had lost my mind. It will coincide with the biggest influx of UFO activity the world has ever seen. I wouldn't even be surprised if he shows up riding on a UFO. Because all of that is part of the deception. You know why? Because if there are aliens out there, they're probably the ones who created us, not the God of heaven. And if there are other races out there, how many other races or types or beings are there out there? And what does it all do? It all leads you astray from the story that tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all things are the works of his hands. He will come with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, verse 11, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe the lie in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. My friends, can I close tonight by saying, and I mean, there's so much more. I haven't even gotten to the judgment seat of Christ, but you've got the doctrine of the rapture of the church at the bottom of page six. You've got the doctrine of the mystery at the bottom of page seven. You've got the doctrine of inter intercalation at the middle of page eight. You say, I've never heard of intercalation. Read up on it overnight. It's a biblical doctrine. I don't even have time to cover all those things. I want to leave you with this tonight. Every single day, you and I are rubbing shoulders with people who are in peril of going into the most awful time in human history. You think World War II was bad? You think the death camps in Germany were bad? You think 6 million, 8 million, 10 million? You think the 50 million that Mao slaughtered is bad? Scripture tells us that when this guy gets in power, he is going to fulfill the dream of Bill Gates, eliminating 90% of the world's population. They want you dead. You know, I always wonder when I see these guys, Klaus Schwab, George Soros, Bill Gates, Ted Turner, he's gone now, he knows better. They all want to eliminate. I'd like to just say, you guys line up, we'll start with you. That's not how they think because they believe that they are the special ones who should remain behind so that when the population, I'll tell you what they have in mind. They have in mind every living human being being a slave to them and they can jet set around the world. They can go to the Alps and ski at the most luxurious uh, 
ski lodges, they can take cruises, they can go to Africa, and they can go on their safaris with the big game of Africa, and all the while, the masses of the world will be slaving to provide them with their little utopia that is all for them. Boy, have they got a wake-up call coming. Because the tribulation is coming down the track but don't let your neighbors, don't let your family, don't let your friends go into that time. If the rapture happened tonight, how many people that you and I know would be in for a bloodbath that is more horrible than words can describe? We're here to be the light. We are here to be the voice of God's grace and mercy to those who are without Christ. Let's make sure that we tell them. If you're too bashful to tell them, hand them a track, give them a coin, pray for them. Our job is to intercede, that's what priests do. We pray for our nation, I pray for God's mercy on our nation, even as I pray at the same time that His wrath and His judgment will fall on the people who have perverted every true and good and wonderful thing on this earth. But I also pray for them that they too might wake up, open their eyes, hear the gospel, and believe. Let's make sure that we make our time count. Father, we are thankful for your grace. Thank you for the time that we've spent. Thank you for the blessed hope that we have, a hope that transforms our life, a hope that gives us a sense of purpose, a hope that delivers us from doubt and fear and gives us courage in a time of darkness and difficulty. Let the Lord Jesus Christ continue to be proclaimed across this land, open the hearts and the minds of people, even as difficulties are increasing daily, that they will realize there is no way out of here but by faith in Jesus Christ, and only apart from that, there's only judgment. So Father, let each one have the information necessary to make the decision with uh, full realization of what that entails and to understand the love and the grace that you have extended to them. These things we pray, Father, with gratitude and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. See you tomorrow.